Trail Runners. Welcome to another episode of the Coopcast. I'm really psyched that you are here joining me today. I know a lot of you out there are extremely concerned about your health, your well-being, and your immune function during this time that the COVID-19 pandemic is running rampant around the world. That's a totally natural response. However, your immune system response is something that is incredibly complicated and not a lot of people understand. A lot of immunologists and a lot of exercise immunologists have kind of started to make the rounds around the lay uh, publications and in the popular media. And what I did today is I wanted to bring on an exercise immunologist to really kind of set the basis for what our immune system does and what we can do to better support it. So I brought on the podcast, Dr. Glenn Davidson, who's a reader and research director, or the director of research in the School of Sport and Exercise Science at the University of Kent, where he uh, currently teaches there. He also coordinates the Endurance Research Group, uh, which means he has this kind of a specific role in working with and understanding endurance athletes. He achieved his PhD in nutrition and exercise immunology from Londonboro University in 2006, and he's also a basis accredited sports and exercise scientist as well as a chartered uh, scientist. He comes to us with just a wealth of experience in immunology, in exercise science, and specifically in exercise immunology as well. And although this area of immunology is heightened during the current pandemic that we're all experiencing. Really, from a coaching perspective, and I can speak on the last 20 years that I've been uh, working with athletes, it's something that we have to be keenly aware of at all times. Every year there's a flu season, and every year there's a season where athletes just simply get sick. And we always want to take safeguards against athletes becoming ill or infected with some sort of uh, uh, with some sort of virus, because it's just simply a robber of training availability. And training availability, the number of days and the number of hours that you can actually train, is such an incredibly important part of success on the whole whole as any individual athlete. And so what I tried to do with this conversation is I wanted to make it more evergreen. It would be very easily it would be very easy to get caught in the weeds of how COVID-19 works, how this current coronavirus is affecting uh, athletes, what we need to watch out for, do we need to wear you know PPE when we're out and running and things like that. And um, I really felt that that type of conversation would just be a little bit too here and now. And also, since we're very early in this novel and learning about this novel coronavirus, we would just be guessing a lot. And I wanted to get down to the heart of the matter and deliver a lot of practical relevant and evergreen information that athletes can not only take away for the next two weeks, but take away for forever in order to protect themselves uh, from illness and from infections. And so we cover a number of different topics, including just how a general framework of how the immune system works, how these different components of the innate and the adaptive immune system works. Um, how much exercise is safe and how hard exercise can we actually go? And do we actually know the answers to those questions amongst uh, a big group of people? We also go into how some of the research is being interpreted and maybe uh, perhaps being 
misinterpreted uh, when we look at some of the things that are actually coming out as it has to do with supplements and, and immune response. I found this conversation incredibly enlightening. I learned a lot of things that I did not know previously. Uh, I really appreciate Dr. Davison for uh, coming on and spending some of his incredibly valuable time, uh, which is which is becoming far less and less common for these exercise immunologists right now. And so I hope that the listeners out there, I hope you all get some practical, relevant, and some immediately actionable information that you can take away, uh, that you can do some things to really protect yourself here and now. And I also hope that you get some information that really helps put you at ease in terms of how you could actually be impacted by the virus that's going around and also for any sort of future illnesses or virus uh, viruses that uh, go around for years to come. So kick back, turn your ears up, and hope you have a good time with my conversation here with Dr. Glenn Davison talking about exercise, immunology, and everything about viruses. What's like the lockdown situation around where, where you live specifically? Um, it's, I mean, it's, it's pretty national, sort of pretty standard, standard guidelines at, at the moment. And it's just, um, don't, don't basically go out unless you really have to, right. <laughs> but if you're able to work at home, you, you should work at home. Um, like all public gatherings, uh, are shut down. So pubs and cafes and public parks and everything are just closed. Um, and you are allowed to go out once a day for exercise. Um, but you have, they basically say you shouldn't like, you know, jump in the car and drive several hours to, to, to get somewhere to exercise. It should be, you know, basically go from your door or, you know, if you do have to drive, then it should be with, like the length of time it takes you to get there should be less considerably than, than the amount of exercise you're going to, right. you're going to do. So, um, yeah, and they're just trying to win. Well, they are asking that we maintain this, this social distancing um, sort of thing. So stay two meters <laughs> gap between you and strangers. <laughs> it's like, um, which is it's funny when you're out for a run and you you're kind of going down the pavement and you see somebody coming the other way and you're kind of like, okay, who's gonna yeah. who's gonna jump out into the middle of the road so yeah. that we can pass, kind of thing, but. Uh, it's yeah. Interesting, yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I live here in Colorado Springs, Colorado. We have a great trail network just kind of in my backyard. And it's pretty built. So the, the standards that they use to build trails here are what they call equine standards. So it's a 36 inch trail surface, three, you know, three, three feet, pretty close to two meters. And so there's just enough room <laughs> if one runner is on one edge of the trail and the other runner is on the other edge of the trail that you can maintain that, you know, that two meters, three feet of, 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 of physical distance, but you end up running kind of like up on a berm or just kind of like brushing up against, you know, some trees that might be on the side of the corridor and things like that. And I've always been really like over the past four weeks to, to, to be really, to be really frank with you, Glenn, like the, people have been just so incredibly courteous and I don't know yeah. whether that's a more of a reflection of this particular era. Cause I've not heard that story be consistent across the U S but here I haven't experienced 
anybody that's like had an issue with anything that's yelling at people that's like you know shaming them for doing something or not doing something whatever like i just i don't i, I don't know what to chalk it up to but i just kind of find that people have like been pretty pretty been, been pretty curious or uh, uh courteous about everything yeah I, I think yeah most like i've I've heard similar stories here um I, I guess the one exception is there's been a few complaints about cyclists um but you always get the complaints about cyclists right. and um, you know, so for example, cycling on the pavement and basically forcing the, the runner or the walker to have to go around rather than them. Um, I think it's probably the, not the kind of veterans, if you like. It's probably the, the people who have been forced to, to jump on a bike or take up cycling because they can't do what they normally do. Right. And they're just not kind of quite au fait with the etiquette of it and all of that sort of sort of stuff yeah i know in some of the bigger cycling communities here like particularly in boulder initially there was a pretty big like pushback from a lot of like the hardcore cycling community like we don't need to follow these guidelines like we're you know we they, we're not going to play by the rules you know we're going to continue to go on our group rides and stuff like that and it just took you know there's still some outliers on the edges of that bill curve but it and it took you know three or four weeks, but it just seems to like that initial pushback seems to seems to just have been depressed over the last few weeks because everybody's just starting to kind of get it. You know, it's not like you know, it's it, it just wasn't like it was when when all the initial restrictions came down. Like people are just kind of like, okay, we're gonna we're gonna figure out how to live like this. Yeah, but yeah, uh, it's I, I've started to get to the stage where I'm like. Oh, when is this going to be over? <laughs> <laughs> one of the one of the things I was really curious about people with like your area of expertise have like have you been in like like high demand? Are you like a hot commodity right now for, because of your domain expertise? Yeah, I'm getting a lot <laughs> a lot more interest. I should you know, but, um, <laughs> yeah, but it's good it's good to get out there. <laughs> but it's funny because so as a coach. Like this, the, this recent, you know, this recent pandemic, which is tragic and it's absolutely, you know, dominating the landscape right now. But to be honest with you, like I've always held people with exercise immunology, uh, specialties in really high regard because in a, nor in, in, a, in any normal circumstance, having an athlete get sick is a total robber. Like it completely wrecks athletes, you know, training cycles where it not only takes them out for like this, this kind of like acute phase of the sickness, but also has, you know, tail associated with it when they're kind of getting back into training and things like that. And I think a lot of times as coaches and athletes also think about this is they think about like the big injuries that they have to encounter, like the bony stress injuries and the strains and the muscle pulls and the stress fractures and things like that. But in a lot of regards, they don't pay as much attention to some of the other types of uh, things that impact their training availability. One of which is just staying healthy and not getting infections, whether they be viral infections, other type of types of illnesses and things like that. So I've always held y'all in very high regard, irrespective of the times right now, but I can understand, I can understand how, you know, your profile has been, uh, you know, elevated to a large extent during the last several <laughs> weeks. <laughs> 
Yeah, <laughs> probably won't be for long. Like, but, uh, you know, make make the most of it while you while you can. All right. Well, you'll still have me for what it's worth. <laughs> you'll still have me. Um. Okay. So, I mean, let's use that as a little bit of a launch point and 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 kind of get into it. Uh, you and I had some correspondence uh, before the podcast uh, before we started recording this podcast, and one of the, one of the things I want to do is I want to make sh- I want to I want to put uh, an evergreen layer to this conversation because it's really easy to get caught up in the here and now the pandemic and what can we specifically uh, do about COVID-19 and how do we prevent ourselves from getting infected and transmitting the disease or transmitting the virus and things like that. But for, for a few reasons, mainly one of which is this is really early in this whole thing. And there are a lot of things that we don't know. And I am trying as hard as I can to get out of the speculation game and the prediction game, because ultimately it, that's a kind of a fool's errand, but alluding to my earlier point, I do think that, uh, one of the, one of the things that athletes can come away from this experience with is that how they treat their immune system and how they treat, how they treat immune function, it matters. And it matters a lot in a normal year now there just happens to be like a magnifying glass on it that everybody's paying attention to because of the current pandemic, but it should be it that magnifying glass shouldn't be completely lifted away once the pandemic is over. It is a really really big deal for athletes to just stay healthy throughout the year in order as a means to uh, to increase or sustain their overall training availability. So to, to to set the table a little bit and try to make this a little bit more evergreen, why don't you just give us a broad overview of how the immune how the immune system functions and how different components of it adapt and react to the environment and to exercise? Yeah, I mean the first thing to start with is is I guess a definition of of the immune system and the definition of what we mean by immunity, um, and I guess the, the the term immunity, strictly speaking means to be free from illness or infection or disease and the immune system has the job of of providing that or of sort of um, supporting that that requirement or that function so essentially the job of the immune system is to protect us from illness and infection or at least that's one of the main jobs of the immune system it's actually not the only job of the immune system but the primary function is to basically protect against infection, protect against illness, protect against pathogens, sort of bugs and things like that, which could cause an illness or could cause an infection. Um, So it's got a number of of different functions. In order to be able to do that protection um, or to have that ability to protect the the body, it has to be able to recognise things and differentiate self-material from non-self material or sort of potentially pathogenic organisms etc um, and then it has to be able to do something about those things when it has identified them um, so we normally refer to this as sort of protect um, recognize attack and destroy so p-r-a-d and um, so it needs to be able to recognize things and then sometimes go and attack and destroy those things in order to eliminate them from the body or prevent them from um, gaining a foothold in the body so there's two broad classifications um, to to the kind of, I guess, the anatomy, if you like, or the, the kind of how we classify the immune system and, and the way it functions. And we usually refer to these as innate 
immunity and adaptive immunity. Um, and they, they're often classified as if they're two completely separate things, but in reality, they are part of the same system and it all works together as an integrated system. Um, and there's a lot of kind of synergy and there's a lot of integration between the, the, the different parts of the system. Um, but in a kind of simplistic way, the innate immune system and innate immune responses are almost like the first line of defense. Um, and another name for the innate immune system or the innate immune arm is the non-specific immune arm. And basically, it this is almost like the first line um, and it generally has the same response against everything. It's kind of non-discriminatory. Um, and because of that, it can it can act very, very quickly. Um, so it can be called into action very, very quickly to try and, and protect the body. Um, and in fact, actually, if we go back a, a, a slight step from there, um, there are other physical components of the immune system and of the human body that we would classify as part of the innate immune system. And this is things as simple as physical barriers. Um, so the most obvious physical barrier that we have is the skin. Um, and that is, in a way, preventing these potential bugs, these potential pathogens entering the body. So it's an actual physical barrier, which is preventing things getting into the body. That's part of, of the innate immune system. Um, but we also have sort of chemical barriers. So, for example, some of the secretions and the fluids and the things that we secrete onto the surface of the skin, onto the upper respiratory tract, the mucosal surfaces and things like that. Some of them basically make the body less hospitable or more difficult for these pathogens to to actually enter and um, so that would be part of the innate immune system um, if those first line defenses are breached um, and if a, if a pathogen should enter the body and basically try to um, take a foothold within the body then sort of the next step if you like of the innate immune system will kick in but this is still still quite rapid so we can start to activate some of the cellular immune mechanisms, which are certain cells of the immune system, which can basically um, recognize and attack and destroy these pathogens. And um, well, depending on the pathogen, if it's something quite large, like a bacteria, then certain innate immune cells might recognize that from receptors or things that it expresses on its surface, and they can come and actually destroy it, um, either by a process called phagocytosis um, or the, the kind of the Pac-Man mechanism, as I, I like to refer to it, where they can engulf it and, and destroy it, um, or they can release substances that will actually um, destroy it without having to take it in, inside of the cell. Um, and so they, they have a whole arsenal of defences that they can basically unleash uh, against these sorts of pathogens. But if it's a smaller... Um, particle or it's a smaller pathogen that's maybe a little bit more difficult to actually see something like a virus um for a virus to replicate for a virus to survive it actually has to hijack the machinery of another cell so it has to infect a cell of the host first and then once it's inside of the cell that's when it can actually replicate by hijacking the um, biological machinery of that cell that that is there to actually replicate and what um, the immune system can do um, is it can be targeted against those cells. So it will destroy a cell that is infected by a virus. And the immune system um, and the innate immune system can, can be involved in that step as well. 
Um, so there's what will happen is um, in order for the immune system to be able to attack and destroy that infected cell, it needs to be able to recognize that it's infected. And there's two ways that it can recognize it. One way is the cell um, can express a protein or some kind of marker related to the virus, which basically is almost like a beacon kind of flagging that this cell is infected. And then the immune system can, can come and act and, and destroy that. Um, some viruses are a little bit more tricky, though, and what they actually do is they prevent the cells from expressing this marker. So they're almost hiding, trying to evade kind of detection. Um, but we have another cell um, which um, is highly involved in the innate immune system, um, something, for example, called a natural killer cell. Um, and they, I, I guess, switched on to this. And, and the way that these virus um, infected cells try to hide that they're actually harboring a virus is they don't express these markers which or they don't express the molecule which shows these markers and if these cells actually recognize that a cell is showing a lower number of these markers um, that would be used to present these antigens then it will actually suspect that that cell is infected even though the virus is kind of hiding from one part of the immune system, this kind of rings alarm bells that will make these other cells go and start to destroy those kinds of things. Um, another important function of the innate immune system, of course, is getting rid of and, and basically performing this process of breaking down and um, engulfing and, and eliminating cells. It can actually perform that in a controlled way on self-tissue. So, for example, if you've got an old tissue or an old cell that is worn out, um, you need to replace it and it needs to be cleared out. And in exercise, the kind of tissue remodeling process, so when you've got a damaged tissue or a damaged cell, that might be part of a muscle cell, and you need to basically clear out the, the old damaged tissue and the old damaged cells so that they can be replaced with new cells, well, then the immune system is involved in that process that allows that remodeling. So it's actually an important function. Um, but what it demonstrates is that the innate immune system can act on a number of things. And because it's non-specific, you can sometimes get some collateral damage. Um, so if that was the only mechanism that we had, and if that was just allowed to continue unchecked, then yes, it might get rid of a virally infected cell, or yes, it might help get rid of bacterial infections, et cetera, et cetera. But it could also do a lot of harm. And actually, when you hear about um, autoimmune diseases and overreactive immune responses and things like that. That's kind of a little bit what, what's going on there. So that's the innate immune system. Well, before we go on to the adaptive immune system, I, I, th I hope that the listeners can appreciate this description of this because a lot of times we think about our immune response being something that's very static and controlled and limited to to, to white blood cells, which is most people's normal recognition of the immune system. But when you, the way that you described it like that, it's actually very clever because it can recognize foreign bodies coming into a, coming into a host. It can, and it can also recognize when those foreign bodies are trying to actually hide and adapt from the response that's that the body is then sending to them. And I think that that's just something really like beautiful and elegant about the immune system that goes underappreciated. It's like how malleable 
and how adaptive it is to these things that are trying to invade it and cause infection. Yeah, it's. I mean, it's really fascinating. And and I mean, if you even like the the white blood cells are one of the main components of the immune system, and there are billions of them. It's it's hard to kind of fathom sometimes. There are billions of them in the body, but there's lots of other tissues and molecules and and things which help it communicate. It's really quite vast. It's it's such a complex system and and the way it works when it works well and it's an integrated response with lots of different components all acting together in concert um is yeah is really quite amazing i think so let, let's move on to the adaptive component then you did such a good job of explaining of, of explaining the innate com- component i can't wait to hear this piece of it yeah so the adaptive immune response um or you will sometimes hear this referred to as the specific immune response. So the innate was non-specific, the adaptive is specific. And this one takes longer to develop um, or it takes longer to actually kick into action. Um, so it's it's not quite as quick, but it is, it's much more targeted and, and much more specific. So it's kind of good that the innate immune system can kind of almost hold the fort whilst the adaptive response is actually kicking in and and establishing because it can take several days or even several weeks for the adaptive immune response to a novel or new exposure to actually fully respond and and sort of fully activate. And there are a number of different components, but probably the most notable components are, are certain types of white blood cell of the adaptive immune response and they will. So when I talked about, for example, a virally infected cell, um, you can have the innate immune system recognizing that cell, maybe going and starting to, to sort of do some work on it, but at the same time, it will release substances which will signal to other components of the immune system. Um, and these are the components of the immune system might kind of come and, and, and have a, an effect and have an action on clearing those. Um, so the first exposure, the adaptive immune system will actually take quite a long time to respond. But one of the things that we have that is different in the adaptive immune um, system or the adaptive immune response is something called immunological memory. Um, and basically, this is where after an initial exposure, which um, takes a long time for the adaptive immune response to kick in, it it almost remembers or it kind of, so basically what happens is the, the cells of the adaptive immune system will proliferate, they will dif- divide, and they will ultimately become a specific type of cell, which will have a specific function. Um, so some of the functions that we associate with the adaptive immune response are the production of antibodies, for example. Um, and antibodies are specific. These are like your sharpshooters, if you like. They are not sort of um, non-specific, and they don't have all of the collateral damage that you would associate it with. That you would associate with the innate response, and they are targeted to a specific, often protein, um, or or something that might be associated with a virus um, or a pathogen, rather, I should say. Um, and antibodies can basically bind to a pathogen and either prevent it from attaching or prevent it from essentially infecting a cell or prevent it from replicating. Um, and But every pathogen, which might be primarily comprised of protein, is, is going to be different in its structure. So the antibodies that we produce are specific 
to a particular protein or a particular sequence or something like that. So one antibody will work on one target, but it won't necessarily work on another target. So we have to have specific antibodies for these specific things. Um, so by producing antibodies, it's, it's one of the defense mechanisms that we can have to basically stop replication of pathogens and, and stop them really infecting the body. And this is slow to develop because the immune system has, has to recognize it, it has to divide, it has to develop, it has to initiate um, the production of these substances. But once it's done that once, um, you basically have memory cells, if you like, which, which basically stick around sometimes for life, so that if you encounter the same pathogen again, they're already there. So you don't have, you basically can, can sort of bypass the initial steps and move straight to one of the kind of further steps in the process. That means the second response can be a lot quicker and you can basically usually neutralize or destroy this pathogen before it actually has a chance to infect the host. Um, and this is exactly the principle by which a vaccination works. So, um, or naturally acquired immunity. So if you vaccinate somebody, you're basically exposing their immune system to either an attenuated version of a, of a pathogen, an attenuated version of a virus, or a protein that will be a protein from a, from a pathogen, from a virus, which allows the immune system to develop this memory so that when you actually come into contact with the real disease, the immune system responds so quickly um, with a specific response rather than an innate response per se, and therefore it's able to neutralize or eliminate it before it actually infects the body. And that's come into the popular news, into the kind of the mainstream media right now, because one of the things very specific to uh, COVID-19 is, is we don't know if somebody has the antibodies to the virus, if they are then in fact immune. That's one of the things that a lot of the virologists are, are trying to figure out right now. Just because you have those specific antibodies doesn't mean that you're immune from infection or reinfection. Yeah, and that's a that's a tricky one. I don't I don't know the answer to that one, I'm afraid. Yeah. But um it it could like generally speaking, for viral infections, um if you have the vaccination your body then if you have a good response to the vaccination because not everybody always has a good response to the vaccination but most young healthy people have a good response to most vaccinations if you have a good response to the vaccination it normally will provide protection what we're unsure about with regards to something like COVID-19 is do, will you get full protection um, or could you still be susceptible even? So is the vaccination going to be effective? When we look at other respiratory viruses, um, I mean, you there isn't a vaccination for the common cold, um, partly because it's not that serious. So there's not that much of a desire and there's not that much money in it for the big farmer who, who would develop these um, vaccinations. Um, but it also, there's so many different strains of virus. There's several hundred um, viruses that could cause a, a common cold so it's a really difficult one to, to vaccinate influenza so the flu we have vaccinations for that but you have to have them every year because the strains change and your vaccinate the protection that you get from the vaccination is only specific to the strain that you're vaccinated against they are trying to develop a universal vaccine but they're not quite there yet for influenza so it could it be with covid that 
there's different strains that are emerging. So just because you have protection against one, you don't have protection against another. Or could it be that um, it's actually able to reinfect the same individual, even with the same strain? And we don't I, I don't think we know the answer to that yet because it's so novel and, and so new. Um, but it's it's I guess just talking about respiratory infections in general, it it makes you realize that you you might have immunity to one thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean you have immunity to another. So it can be a yeah, complicated and, and tricky area. Yeah. Let, let's steer back to what we kind of know a little bit more of since uh, since COVID is so new and we could go on for eons about this. But I, I mentioned from the onset that when athletes get upper respiratory infections, it is a killer. And I I personally, as a coach, I bang my head against the wall when this happens because I know they're missing training time. And I also know that there is likely something that could have been done in the training process to help protect the athlete. I view it as a little bit of programming error that could have gone into some component that created uh, that infection. And I wanna get into both of those, but to set the table on that, let's go over some like really just generalized incidents reporting amongst athletic populations in terms of how often are they getting upper respiratory infections in any other normal year, not 20, not 2019, 2020. Let's go back to like 2018, 2017, 2016, like things like that. What do we know about how frequently athletes are becoming infected? I mean, if we're talking about just upper respiratory infections um so things like the common cold is the most common one the flu a little bit and if we talk about so those types of things um, upper respiratory tract um, and if we start with what's normal for a non-athlete so what's the normal incidence in the in the general population i mean it does vary um across the seasons and it does vary from year to year so you do have years with pandemics and with epidemics not just like this year but you know we've had other flu epidemics and flu pandemics in previous years or we sometimes just have a year where it is just a normal common cold but you know it's the year you remember that year when everybody got it as opposed to another year when nobody had it so i'm kind of saying this as a approximate rule of thumb as a kind of a bit of a rolling average over several years um but obviously bearing in mind that you will get spikes some years compared to other years and you do tend to get spikes um certainly in the northern hemisphere you tend to get spikes around the winter months um so sort of december or november december january february um sort of time or whenever the winter season is and um, wherever you are in the world so it does vary across seasons as well but an average person will typically pick up about two or three of these sorts of infections um, or they will report at least two or three of these sorts of infections in a typical calendar year. Um, somebody who is just regularly exercising and is meeting the kind of general health guidelines, probably about half that amount. And again, this is on average. We've obviously, so this is the middle of the bell curve and, and we've obviously got the outliers and we've got the full distribution. This, so we're just talking about the average right, right in the middle here. Um, and then athletes or people with a higher training load, um, they could be very similar to a regularly active individual. So they could have a lower reporting incidence or they could be all the way over to the right of the curve um, and actually be reporting much more frequent incidences. So if somebody's reporting four or five episodes per year, we would normally classify them as 
moderately at risk or moderately illness prone athlete if they're getting more than five and there were a couple of papers where um, top level athletes are reporting between 10 and 12 episodes per year then we would classify those as highly illness prone athletes so you can get athletes who who report these things a lot even in athletes you might look at them and or you might look at their data and they might not report any more in terms of their total incidence per calendar year but if you look at when they occur they can also tend to cluster around certain times winter can be a cluster point but also intensified periods of training or competition can also be a cluster point and if it's in the run-in to a big event that you've maybe been preparing for for a long while then obviously that's the absolute worst time to, to pick up one of these and that happens a lot because a lot of times athletes are intensifying their training in the last few weeks leading up to event and in addition to that i always think that this is another confounding factor that doesn't that isn't really fully appreciated in a lot of the studies they're traveling to the event and coming in contact with other people, other sources of infection. And so their exposure risk goes up simply because of that increased contact and that increased travel that they're having uh, in the weeks leading up to the event. Um, what So what you're describing, a lot of people will recognize as the J-curve, which has gotten a lot of attention in athletic circles. And it basically describes if you're a non-exercising individual, you have a certain risk two to three times a year of getting an infection. If you take the... In, in the U.S. or I guess worldwide, would be the ACSM health and fitness guidelines for being quote unquote healthy. You're going to reduce that risk by half. But if you train, and most athletes in our audience are athletes, and they're going to be in kind of in this latter category, you can actually have an increase in your risk or your incident rate of having an infection. And so when you plot those three points over a continuum from not exercising to exercising to training from left to right, it kind of plots this J curve out. Is there any other kind of like nuance or caveats with this J curve that you think athletes would be well served to, to, to have some information on? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, that's the stylized model. Um, right. There have been some people who have questioned this um, and I mean, maybe we'll have a chance to talk talk about the different opinions on this um, in in a little bit. But I guess the the one thing that I would want to point out is that, and maybe this when people question it, maybe they're not fully understanding understanding the the sort of the nuance to the model. And that is that it's a simplification, and it's got two dimensions. Okay? And you've got your x-axis here with training load, um, or amount of stress, physical stress or whatever. And one of the important points that I, I think it's really important to point out is that you don't, you're not fixed to a particular point on that x-axis. So an athlete at different times in their training cycle in different parts of their periodization plan, they might move left and right across that curve. Um, the other thing is, of course, it's only considering physiological demand of exercise but that's that's what, what i mean by one dimensional or that the, there's this one dimension in that axis if you like but in reality in in real life with an athlete there's a whole host of other factors um confounding and contributing variables that also have an interplay with this relationship so 
it's not just physical stress, but there's lots of other stresses. It's psychological stress. It could be environmental stress. It could be general life stress. Um, it could be related to work. It could be related to relationships. It could be related to that. You know, there's there's a whole psychophysiological area. Um, it could be related to travel. It could be related to nutrition. There's there's so many other factors that it's hard to untangle them all and, and look at them all separately and individually. Um, so what we need to remember is that the amount of training that an individual does is one of the contributing factors, but it's not the only factor. And when we're dealing with a real person in real life, not a laboratory animal who you've got absolute control over, then we do need to be aware of, of all of these other factors. Um, the other The other really important thing there is the i guess the other component is how the immune system is functioning so what are you doing that is influencing the immune defense the kind of defense side of the equation um, and that that says how strong your defense might be should you be exposed to a to a pathogen so how able your body is to fight it off if you come into contact with it but you have to come into contact with it in the first place so the exposure is a massive confounding factor it's a massive um, risk factor that is sometimes overlooked it's really difficult to manipulate exposure in in the research that we do on on this to try and understand this relationship it's it's very difficult to control the exposure um, what we normally try to do is um, take information from sufficient people so that we've got a good representation of the whole population um, in animal studies, of course, they can control exposure and they, they will sometimes um, challenge animals with a, with a virus. So they will expose them intentionally to this virus. And that has been done in human studies um, as well, but not with exercise. Um, it's normally done in pharmaceutical companies where they're, um, sorry, pharmaceutical studies where they're testing medications or vaccination efficacy and, and so on. Um, and it's a really difficult and very, very expensive study. These are multi-million dollar studies and the cost to do these. Um, so obviously quite different from your typical exercise science study. Um, so the, the relationship is a, the, the J curve that you talked about is a, is a nice model. And I think it's a nice stylized representation. But we always need to be mindful of the fact that there's lots of other things that, that come into play at the same time. Yeah, 100%. And your point on exposure, I think, should be well taken. And it's kind of like a no-duh statement. Like, of course, you have to have exposure to a virus to get an illness from it. But in this time, people are forgetting that. And they're, st and they're starting to think about, okay, what are all the ways that... I can boost my immune system. We're going to come back to that in a little bit. The body's response and how you can support a, a healthy uh, immune, how you can support a healthy immune response. But in ter but in terms of exercise, even if you knocked the immune system down, if there's no exposure, there's no risk. Now that's a big statement, having quote unquote no exposure. But if you look at a lot of the 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 quarantine, the self-quarantine, the social distancing and things like that, all of those measures are in an effort to reduce the exposure from person to person to person. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, that was obviously that's one of the biggest controllable risk factors. Right. Um, 
from an athlete's perspective is what what can you do to minimize your risk of getting ill well you can minimize your your exposure and you know several months ago we would have probably thought that it was like completely ridiculous to to totally reduce your, your exposure and essentially <laughs> live live in quarantine if you like um but i mean it's difficult in in when we're not in a situation where we're kind of in a, in a lockdown or something like that it's for an athlete even if they are a professional full-time athlete it's still very difficult to completely eliminate exposure um and if they're not a professional full-time athlete they've got a life to have they have to go to work they have to get there somehow they have to potentially interact with people at work they might have kids and kids are great at you know bringing back illness from school and spreading it around and, and stuff like that so although a pragmatic recommendation is to minimize or try to reduce your exposure sometimes it's really difficult to do that in the real world when you, when you have a life to live and um, but if you can minimize it as much as possible then you can obviously minimize your risk or if you can minimize it at the times when you know you are most at risk um, then obviously you could minimize your risk um, further. So being pragmatic and, and trying to integrate that into something that's workable for the individual and everybody's going to be different in what they can and can't do. So I think that that's probably um, the, the best strategy though is, is minimizing your risk as much as is feasibly possible for you or for that person. Yeah, for our, our elite athletes that travel around a lot and have to interact with uh, fans and people in the media and other athletes and support personnel and things like that, they're constantly coming into like interpersonal contact with uh, kind of with other individuals from all around the world, especially during the competition season. We have a little punch list of stuff. I should have pulled this up right before the right before the podcast, but we have this little punch list of stuff that they need to be cognizant of when they're undertaking those travels. And it goes everywhere from hey, do a fist bump instead of a handshake. And now that would even be considered taboo, right? It's like just six foot fist bump or something like that, a two meter fist bump. Um, but it'd be, you know, do a fist bump instead of a handshake and carry your own, your own pin around. If you're signing autographs or if you have to sign any other documents and things like that, wash your hands, don't touch your face. Like a lot of these things that, um, uh, that, that are now coming to light on the side of exposure and reducing your exposure, those can be considered a lot of them can be considered healthy habits for forever. Even once this virus is kind of under control, when we go through our normal flu seasons and things like that, we can take a lot of these lessons that we have learned through this time and apply them to the future so that athletes don't get sick even at normal times. And I think one of the, <clears throat> one of the things that we've learned, I think from the, the kind of the current pandemic is that it's actually possible. I think it's probably made people realize how some of those um, minimizing exposure strategies are actually possible. Like some of them, when when the world goes back right. to normal, if, if, if ever that happens, hopefully soon, um, sort of beforehand, some of those recommendations about, you know, avoiding ill people or, you know, um, minimizing our exposure, some of those you would just say, well, that's ridiculous. You can't do that. It, it's not feasible. But one of the things that this has shown us is that, it can it can be done so individuals if they know that they're at an increased risk for a, a period of time they could at least try to implement similar strategies as much as possible during those risk periods and then the other the things that we're seeing about hand washing and um we've i, I don't know if it's been the same for for you guys in, in the us but in the uk we've had all of these 
um, health recommendations about effective hand washing technique um, and you know washing it in a particular way for a certain amount of time and using the right method and how many people did that before and actually that that could be such an yeah. effective strategy because one of the biggest ways of infection is essentially self-inoculation whereby you've picked up the pathogen from something that you've touched or from shaking hands with somebody and then you introduce it into your body because you touch your nose or mouth or eyes or, or some other route of entry that's and that's brilliant i think a lot of people are singing happy birthday to themselves while they're <laughs> washing their hands and it might continue to go on um let, let's kind of come back to the athletic side of things uh, again uh, i know a lot of athletes are living in a little bit of of what i would call like reasonable fear about what happens to their immune system after they go and do a workout particularly if that workout is hard and or long and a, a lot of the dialogue around this kind of revolves around this open window hypothesis uh, that, uh, that, that's been floating around the athletic circles for, for several years now. Why don't you review what we know or what we think the open window hypothesis tells us about immune, about immune function immediately post-exercise? Yeah, so the, the open window hypothesis is that certain types of exercise, so if the exercise is intensive and or prolonged enough then you will get a period a short period after exercise or so in the recovery phase when immune function is reduced um, now this isn't usually what we would consider a clinical reduction um, so it's not it's not massive i i guess would be one way of saying that um, but it might be enough to lower your defenses just a little bit to mean that if you were exposed to something that's going to cause a, a, an illness, that you're now less able to fight it off than you otherwise would be. So the theory is that for several hours, um, maybe sometimes a little bit longer, it depends how hard and long the exercise was, the immune system is knocked down a little bit. And this is referred to as immunodepression or exercise-induced immunodepression. And it's this period of immunodepression which is basically reducing those defenses, which means if you're exposed, you might be less able to fight it off. Um, so that's what the open window hypothesis is. And the open window hypothesis exists because lots of studies have been done where they measure various markers of immune system function. So the classical ways of doing this in the kind of older studies would be to take a um, bodily fluid sample. So the most common one would be a blood sample. Um, or a saliva sample and then measure markers in those samples which give us an indication of, of how well the immune system is functioning so that's the hypothesis so that might be for example you count the number of the different types of white blood cells and then you add something to the sample which will stimulate those white blood cells to actually initiate their function or to behave in the way that they would behave if they were encountering uh, a pathogen in the body and then you measure that response in various ways. So you're almost testing the immune cell's ability to unleash its arsenal of attack. And there's been lots and lots and lots of studies that have measured various components of the immune system. And many of these components have been showed to be reduced a little bit for at least several hours after very intensive and or prolonged exercise. So that's the theory. The problem with it is that in traditionally in those studies, the way that we've assessed the immune system is by 
taking a sample from outside of the body so it's no longer in its natural environment so can we really translate that into what how it would respond when it's in the body encountering a pathogen and also we are only accessing the components of the immune system or the cells of the immune system that are either in a saliva sample or in a blood sample but that's not necessarily where where they are working when they're in the body so you've taken them out of their natural environment is the first problem um, the second problem is we tend to measure one or two or three or four or maybe even 10 or 20 or 30 different things but we measure them all individually whereas in reality there's there's many dozens of different functions and different components of the immune system and like i said near the beginning they all need to work together in a synergistic and integrated way so it's probably a little bit of a leap to to look at a single marker of immune function or a single cellular response and say this is reduced by 30 percent or 40 percent that means that you're definitely at an increased risk because when one thing goes down that could be compensated for by an increase in another thing and we do have a natural redundancy built into the immune system it's it's a really smart system so it's it's complex for a reason it's complex so that you know if you have a deficiency in one area you could sometimes compensate for it with um, adequate or or higher levels in another area so it's translating the individual changes in specific markers to a genuine clinically relevant risk is is actually difficult and you could i mean even if you could measure absolutely every individual component of the immune system out of the body in a in a lab in a test tube how do you mathematically put them all back together to understand how they would all work and integrate together is 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 almost impossible so what what that basically means is the problem with a lot of the historical research is that the markers that we've been traditionally relying upon are not necessarily indicative of risk of illness now obviously if you've only measured one thing and that's gone down then you don't know what's happened to the rest of the immune system if you've measured 20 things and they've all gone down you can probably be a little bit more confident that that's not going to be good for your risk um, of, of illness or infection um, but the other thing that it doesn't take into account is could it be that the the cells that we're really interested in you haven't picked them up in the blood sample because they've gone off to where they need to be they've gone to the lungs they've gone to the respiratory tract they've gone to the gut they've gone to these places where they're needed so you're not actually measuring the cells that you that you should be interested in yeah redirection so to speak yeah yeah so but it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist it just right. means that that when the what we thought was strong evidence in the past is not necessarily strong evidence now and we're now starting to appreciate that that we need to try and measure the whole system working together in concert rather than individual components and there have been several studies where where we have measured um some indication of the whole system working together in vivo so markers where you're not taking a cell out of the body you're actually applying some kind of challenge to the body and you're you're measuring how the immune system responds in vivo in the human body in the real world in real life and we still see with those markers we do still see that exercise does reduce it um so there's definitely an open window um i guess where the debate is at the moment is how significant is that 
at contributing to your risk of, of getting an illness. And I mean, it's almost impossible to, to put specific numbers on that, but my argument would be that it can't be a good thing. We, we know that the function of the immune system is to protect against illness. So if, when you look at it in a whole integrated way, if we're seeing reductions, it would probably be better to not have those reductions in terms of your defense against getting ill. That's a really good synopsis of it, is we know that there's something going on, but we don't know its clinical significance. And the dialogue that um, that you went through regarding the specific markers and their individual contributions to this whole immunodepressive uh, aspect, I think is really brilliant. And this happens all of the time in physiology and biochemistry and nutrition, where we pick out one really specific thing, whatever it is, you know, and we say, ah, well, this marker is going up or it's going down or it's going sideways. And therefore X, Y, and Z happen. And the therefore piece, as you mentioned, in almost all cases is a really big leap of faith to take one very specific marker and then extrapolate a physiological process that encompasses hundreds or thousands of different various, you know, biomarkers and processes and in chemical chemical pathways and things like that. I just look at it and I shake my head and I'm like, no, it's like not that simple. Like it's really, really complicated. You can't always look at one specific thing and extrapolate that something is happening in the body to a global level. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's. I I totally agree with that, and and I have very similar kind of thoughts when I when I see not not just in immunology but in in physiology in general. And there's it, it can go both ways. It can kind of be there's a there's something that increases. Um, we see a lot of it in kind of training physiology where you measure a particular marker, you measure the expression of something, and it's gone up by five hundred percent on this condition as opposed to 300% that it normally goes up. And we say, oh, well, that means the 500% is better. But is it? Because could it be that once it's gone up by more than 50, everything above that is the same? Right. And 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 it could be the same from the kind of immune system in terms of, okay, we've seen a 30% decrease or a 40 or a 50. Does that matter? Um, is anything below, you know, anything greater than a 20% the same? Or is it is it that it doesn't matter until you get all the way down to like over an 80% decrease and anything up to that is okay. And it's kind of like a threshold concept. And we just don't know for many of these things where that threshold is. And the like, is it a linear gradual kind of proportional relationship or is it a threshold? And you know, the tiniest amount above and below is where the difference is and going beyond that doesn't alter. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's really interesting. The over-interpretation of biomarkers now has just gotten in. This is a tangent that I'm, I'm actually going to bring a guest on in a few weeks. It's Sean Arendt out of Rutgers university. And we're going to talk a little bit about biomarkers, but I I really want to shed some light on my, what, what is my opinion that we are over-interpreting in many cases, what these biomarker movements actually practically mean to people. That's another conversation. Let's, let's bring it (laughs) back to, let's bring it back to immune, immune function. Um, one of the fascinating feet, one of the fascinating features of immune function is how it gets supported just through natural, you know, natural things that you can, that you can do. And I, one of the things that's, uh, that's kind of emerged out of this COVID-19 pandemic is, I think a better understanding that 
something to you, something that you alluded to earlier that you can support a healthy immune function. And that's typically the right and uh, kind of broadly regarded vocabulary that we should use when we're describing immune function, that you can support a healthy immune function, but you can't quote unquote boost it, which yeah. now I don't know what you're Instagram and Twitter feed look like now, but I am getting inundated with immune boosters, quote unquote, immune boosting supplements from everywhere. And that is my bullshit detector. Like once I see (laughs) that word immune booster, I just automatically, I can ignore this, but I want to, I want to kind of bring this back to, to, to something more practical because nutrition can can absolutely impact and support a healthy immune uh, a healthy immune system and by nature of um, what ultra runners do run for long periods of time they're going through some acute phases of low energy availability which can affect immune function they're going to have to combat this from a nutritional perspective. Uh, to a certain degree. So why don't we just first go over like, what are some of like the big nutritional no-nos that athletes should be avoiding that could severely impact their immune function? The biggest one is nutritional deficiency of any description. Um, It's probably the biggest detrimental nutritional practice that, that can, you know, have a negative effect on the immune system and therefore the risk of illness um, and and this is this is really important because it's for most people it's really easy to avoid deficiency by having a healthy um, varied and well-balanced diet so if you do that and if you avoid nutritional deficiencies then you will have a normal healthy um, immune system and i think when we when we see or hear terms like immune boosting um, in relation to nutrition, what they are some again, it's it's this over extrapolation. Right. What they might be describing is what happens when somebody is deficient or they've got a problem, and when they correct that problem. And if you've got a deficiency, that's going to have a, a negative impact on on your immune system and how your immune system is functioning, and therefore your risk of illness. And if you correct that and improve the diet to what it should have been, then that will increase it and and make things better. But really what that's doing is returning them to normal. So people are interpreting that improvement as a boost, but I don't think we should be seeing it that way. I think we should be seeing it as that should be the point of reference. That's where people should be. And it's the same with physical activity as well. That's, we shouldn't be sedentary. So we shouldn't be using sedentary as the point of reference. We should be using healthy in terms of both physical activity and diet and nutrition that should be our point of reference and you can be compromised if you're not following that kind of healthy balanced diet healthy activity levels etc cetera, etc cetera. and if you correct that it's bringing it back to normal and again this is another example of where over extrapolation can occur people can then make an incorrect assumption of you know if i'm deficient in this nutrient and there might be quite a high prevalence of deficiency of certain nutrients in certain populations. And then if I correct that deficiency by supplementing or sorting my diet, it's going to bring me back to normal, which looks like an improvement. So they think, well, if I take loads extra, then that's going to cause even further improvement and boosting in, in inverted commas. But usually what's the case is you don't get any additional benefit once you've got the 
requirements for you as an individual, then adding extra intake on top will normally not do anything further in, in terms of benefit. I think probably the thing that's maybe interesting for athletes is what is that normal healthy requirement? The normal target, if you like, of what is required for certain nutrients for an athlete is probably, for most nutrients, is probably um, a little bit higher than what it is for a, a less active individual. Are there some heavier hitters, though, in the nutrition space, just in terms of either the total amount of calories that uh, that an athlete needs to make sure that they cover with their exercise and obviously their, 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 their basal metabolic calories that they needed, or specific macronutrients or specific vitamins that are really specific to immune function? Yeah, um, I mean, to to probably the biggest one is is, is energy availability or, or total energy intake. So if you're in significant negative energy balance, um, that seems to have a very big negative impact on immune function and, and illness risk. If you are in um, negative protein balance as well, um, that can can be quite a biggie. Um, we used to think negative carbohydrate balance or, or sort of low carbohydrate availability we used to consider that a, a bit of a, a risk factor um but again going back to when we were talking about most of the evidence on carbohydrate is based on these individual markers that i talked about a little while ago which are maybe not the most clinically relevant markers when we actually look at evidence using clinically relevant markers and there's a few more of those these days um it seems to be that actually low carbohydrate availability isn't as big a deal in terms of risk of illness or changing clinically relevant markers as we thought it was um, as long as you're getting total energy and all of the other nutrients in abundance so maybe some of the older studies where we thought low carbohydrate availability was a bad thing maybe it was because by having low carbohydrate availability at the same time we were having low energy availability and maybe even low low protein availability so total energy intake and meeting total energy requirements i would say is probably the most important one and and then micronutrients deficiency of things like zinc um vitamin c vitamin d um are probably the the biggies where if you were if you were severely deficient in those then um although it is quite hard to be deficient in some of these things um but yeah they they could certainly be um bad i guess for immune health and vitamin d specifically has got a lot of attention uh recently and it's also one of the more kind of complicated uh, vitamins being a fat soluble vitamin that you can actually overdose on. Um, if, if an athlete doesn't have, you know, good sun exposure, good exposure to the sun of, uh, on their skin, are, is there anything that they can do to like improve their vitamin D levels? I mean, you can supplement, um, and there are, um, I guess there are accepted intakes, um, you probably have a sort of, I don't know if you have a, would it be F FDA with you guys or? Yeah. 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 So there's yeah, probably yeah. Um, like, so over here, I think it's kind of 4,000 IUs per day is considered safe, which is actually really, really, really high. Um, I, I, yeah. I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't sort of see a need unless you were severely deficient to be supplementing with, with that level. Um, 
but so it, it is reasonably safe to supplement with a moderately high dose and the evidence out there suggests that um, it is safer to have moderate amounts daily rather than really, really large amounts with bigger gaps in between. Um, but what I would actually personally recommend is that it's it's pretty pointless unless you're deficient. So if a, if you're able to, to get screened and get checked out, so if you're able to, to get a vitamin D level or a vitamin D status check, um, then it would be worth doing that in order to inform your decision about whether or not you should um, consider supplementing. Um, because if you are deficient, it obviously can be beneficial. And also, it, it, it will probably need to be rechecked as well, because you might be sufficient in the summer months, but you might be deficient in the winter. Or, you know, you might right. be deficient, you might be severely deficient, so you might try to supplement to get back up to normal. But you know, you would you wouldn't just assume that it was happening. You would have to have a kind of recheck to to make sure that it's happening. So, I would say if you're considering it, and if 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 you're a serious athlete, um, and if you think you may be at risk of deficiency, just just get it checked out. It's it's reasonably cheap to to get a vitamin D screen. Outside of that, is there are there any other supplements that you would recommend specific for immunity? So there's there's I mean there's a couple of things that there's reasonably good evidence for that. And I, th I think the big caveat that I always add when I'm talking about supplements is that we need to be careful when we interpret the evidence, because one of the biggest problems that I see in nutrition research is that you will sometimes see papers, um, you will see published research suggesting that this supplement has a benefit or that supplement has a benefit. But when you actually read the methods of the paper, what you find out was that they didn't actually report or they didn't screen their participants to see whether they were deficient in the first place. So what happens if they were deficient, then they give them a supplement that corrects that deficiency. All you've done is shown what happens when someone's deficient and you correct that deficiency. But if they didn't know that, then the study could come to an incorrect conclusion that taking more of this particular nutrient or this particular supplement is beneficial. So we need to be careful when we look at the research to see whether, are we confident that it is really showing us that taking extra above what you're getting from a normal healthy diet is providing that further benefit? And most of the time, the answer to that question is no. So if, we know, if the diet is already well balanced, and that should be what we aim for first, if we're not experiencing any nutritional deficiencies, can you get any further benefit by adding stuff on top of that diet that basically provides further benefit? There's a couple of things. Um, one of the, I guess one of the most popular ones or one of the most popular types of, of supplements are things like probiotics. Um, and there's reasonably good evidence for probiotics. Um, and again, Obviously, you might get some probiotic type bacteria in a normal diet, but you're not really going to be getting the same amounts that you would get from taking a, a supplement. Um, and there's reasonably good evidence that the dosages that you would use in a supplement study where you would take a, a daily probiotics um, supplement do actually provide um, benefits and reduce the risk of, of illness. And there's been a couple of pretty large scale studies where they monitor athletes over you know, several months, they have a well-controlled placebo versus active, and they actually see a lower 
illness rate in the individuals that had the probiotics. So I'd say that there's reasonably good evidence for probiotics. And also another thing to balance up is the risk versus benefit. And the risk for probiotics is is very low. Um, assuming, you know, often these are provided via dairy products, fermented milk products and so on. Um, so if an individual doesn't have any allergy or intolerance to dairy, then things like um, probiotics have got reasonable, reasonably good evidence that you could get additional benefit from those with very little risk. Um, other things, like we talked about vitamin D, there's there's not really any evidence of that being useful unless you're deficient. Um, the antioxidants and antioxidant vitamins, again, there's, I would say the evidence is weak for those. Um, and it's it's a bit of a kind of old wives tale, you know, have, you know, load up on vitamin C and stuff like that. There are some old studies suggesting that there might be a benefit with really high doses of vitamin C. Um, but again, they didn't necessarily have, or they didn't necessarily report what antioxidant status was like before they supplemented. Um, so, and, and also there's a risk with high dose antioxidants that they could blunt or interfere with training adaptation and the physiological adaptations. So I'd say those kind of things, the evidence I would, I would argue is pretty weak. Um, what other things? Yeah. The antioxidant, the antioxidant supplementation yeah. <laughs> ship has sailed. I think <laughs> it's, it's I, interestingly enough, I, I grew up right next to the Cooper aerobic center in Dallas, Texas. And King Cooper was one of the original researchers in a lot of the high antioxidant types of research. And, uh, I spent some of my teenage years actually there doing what was kind of a combination of a very, very, very low level internship and some, and, and, and some summer work. So I, I've, I've appreciated his work for, for a very long time. And it's been interesting to see the tide turn, so to speak on the antioxidant mm -hmm. side over the last several years. Um, other things, I mean, I've, I've done some research myself on um, bovine colostrum and we have seen quite notable changes in, or quite notable differences between a placebo and a and bovine colostrum groups in the risk of getting ill in athletes and in in sort of periods after intensified training and stuff like that. Um, but one of the I guess controversies, if you like, or one of the the sort of problems that we have right now with um, with bovine colostrum is it's it's quite high in IGF one um, and and other growth factors. So um, WADA, the World Anti Doping Agency actually have issued a, a sort of slightly unusual statement. They've actually had it, um, they've published it for a few years now. Um, because bovine colostrum is a, is a natural dairy product. It's just early milk. Um, and so they, their statement is something along the lines of, it's not banned, um, but because it's quite high in IGF and growth factors, we don't recommend that you use it. So it's, it's in a bit of a gray area and it's a little bit confusing. I mean, Right. Interestingly, the the that was based on some research that suggested that if you take bovine colostrum, it will increase your blood levels of IGF-1. Um, but there was a number of problems with that research and lots of other research that has followed hasn't been able to demonstrate that. And actually, if you just drank, a, you know, a couple of litres of milk, you'd, you you know, or, or took about 40, 50 grams of whey protein, you'd actually get the same dose of IGF. Um, and it's basically just broken down in, in digestion like any other protein. Um, so that one has got good evidence, but I'm always very cautious of recommending it, given what WADA have said. And 
you know, if somebody did take it and then go and test positive for another reason and try to use that as an excuse, then it would probably paint you in pretty bad light or put you in a in a difficult position. Um, so in, unless WADA kind of revise that statement, I, I think I think we need to be really cautious with recommending things um, like that. Um, the other things, there's been a lot of interest in like polyphenols and, and um, you've possibly seen some of the work that's been done on quercetin, um, which is a type of bioflavonoid. Um, and there's been some studies showing that um, high dosages of quercetin and like like one gram a day, one and a half grams a day, which you couldn't obtain from a diet. I mean, it's quite high. You'll, you'll find it in things like That's onions, apples, teas, um, etc. Um, but you couldn't get anywhere near that dose from a normal diet. And there's been some studies suggesting that that can reduce the illness risk. But there's also been some studies showing no effect. So that's a kind of maybe some evidence, maybe, or, well, mixed evidence, I would say. Yeah. The, I mean, the big thing to take away from this is, is make sure you have enough calories and you're deriving enough nutrients from those calories. And then you can, if you wanted to add some like small pebbles to the wall, maybe some vitamin D, maybe some probiotics, you know, maybe some of this, maybe some, but, but don't forget, don't use those to cover up the big rocks, which are total calories and the nutrients that come from yeah, those calories. Absolutely. Yeah. Good analogy. That one, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. Let's, um, we're going to let you go, but, but I, I, I'd be remiss if we didn't go over two like folk folky types of, uh, uh, quotations or phrases that commonly come out when all of these illnesses go around. And I want to get your, your, your quick take on them. And I love these because is, as, as eloquent and as thorough as you've tried to as you've tried to be in the last 75 minutes or something like that which is which is quite amazing i don't think i think it's underappreciated how much time effort research reading goes into kind of having the knowledge level that you have but in a lot of ways sometimes it can be boiled down to some really simple phrases so i want to get okay. your take on those the first one is feed a cold, starve a fever. Interesting. Um, there's There has actually been some experimental evidence on this, um, but but the actual findings are mixed, I, I think. Um, certainly for the, the feed a cold, I think, comes from the evidence that the way that the immune system responds to a viral infection um, would actually benefit from having energy and nutrient availability. Um, and there was one study, I think, that supported that. But I think there's also been studies that refute it. So I would say, as a short response to that, there might be something in it, but it's still a mixed bag of results, unfortunately. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Okay, the next one, and this is what this is one that a lot of that a lot of athletes have heard because it's easy for coaches and people in lay media and things like that to kind of regurgitate training if your symptoms are above or below the neck. Why don't you just take us through like the whole arc, the whole arc of why that might be a plausible piece of advice to give somebody, and then what? Yeah, is your it's take actually. Quite well accepted that one, um, and it's generally speaking, it's kind of separating the more upper respiratory from the kind of more lower 
respiratory sorts of symptoms and therefore the likely cause of it and basically the lower down ones are a little bit more severe usually um, and a little bit more dangerous and you normally feel a little bit more worse that if it's mild again it at the same time you have to balance in how the individual feels and how bad those symptoms are so it's not just as simple as where they are but it's also how bad they are as well but generally if it's above the neck only and if it's mild and um, so if it's just a head cold runny nose a little bit of a sore throat then it's usually considered safer to continue with moderate training and that's the important thing to continue with mild training um <laughs> i love all the caveats if it's mild it may be safer safer not safe safer to continue with moderate yeah. not regular moderate training anyway all the caveats aside keep going <laughs> yeah but i mean i think it, it is important because athletes we know i mean you know many of us I would consider ourselves athletes, maybe at a more recreational level, but you know what we are like. We 100%. don't want to stop. And and you, we do silly things um, sometimes, and actually that can be really, really dangerous. So um, I guess that's the reason for all of the warnings and the, and the, and the caveats. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if... and. And sometimes, you know, athletes will take things as black and white. Well, right. you know, you've said this above the neck rule, so I should be able to continue doing that 100-mile maximal effort <laughs> sort right. of thing. But, yeah, they, they need to put a bit of judgment on how they feel that the, 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 the body will, you know, I guess not thank them if they've, if they've pushed it when they're unwell. What that could mean is actually it means that it takes you longer to recover in the right. long term and then right. you, you spend more time out or you get more ill and you lose more rather than get that benefit from doing that one extra little half of a session or something like that. So maybe we can change it to above the neck, proceed with all of these different caveats. You can have normal training load, maybe a little bit worse as long as, you know, the symptoms above the neck are not that severe, but below the neck, where are the caveats and things there? Is it total stop, like hard stop, like don't even think about it? Or what is your thought on it? I would say hard stop um in order to review there because you, you need you, you need to reevaluate each day and and see which direction your your trajectory is going if it starts to improve um and if the symptoms start to subside it, you, you you could possibly think about easing back into it um but you, you really do need to ease ease back rather than jump straight back into exactly where you left off before Yep. Awesome. Great advice, man. All right. We're going to let you go on behalf of the listeners. We really appreciate your time and really appreciate what you do, not only during this time, during this pandemic, but like I said, as a coach, I've always appreciated folks like use work in the field because it helps us and it helps us just be better informed on what to do day to day in different illness cycles and things like that. So thank you. Thank you very much. Can you tell everybody where they can reach you or learn a little bit more about the research that you do? Yeah, absolutely. If you do a Google search for me, so if you just look up Glenn Davison, University of Kent, UK, um, that'll take you to my homepage. It's got information on there about the research that I do. It's got links to my latest publications and it's obviously got my contact details. Um, I'm also a member of the International Society for Exercise Immunology and the UK Society for Ex Exercise Immunology. So if you look either of those two up, you can probably find my details on there as well. 
Awesome, Glenn. Appreciate it, man. This is great. Right. I know everybody's going to appreciate it. Yeah, stay safe out there, okay? All right, trail runners, that was a hoot. I had a really good time with that. Uh, like I said, I really appreciate Glenn's time and effort that he put into this coming to us all the way from the UK, which is a much different situation than, we're all, than we are at right now. But I do think and I do hope one of the things that you all come away with this conversation with is that a lot of the things that we are learning right now through the COVID-19 pandemic, we can really apply for years and years and years to come. The uh, kind of the hygiene habits that we take away, the way that we can keep ourselves healthy, uh, keeping a healthy diet, washing our hands, not self-inoculating. These are things that we should think about every single year when the cold and flu season starts to come around. And if there is a silver lining or one of the silver linings that starts to emerge out of this pandemic, it says we can take these habits and kind of roll them forward to keep everybody happy safe and healthy for years and years and years to come. I hope all of you are staying safe and healthy out there. I really do hope that we get to see you out on the trail someday. If you like this podcast, go on over to iTunes and give it a like or a review. That helps the podcast out a tremendous amount. Appreciate the heck out of everybody listening. We'll see you at some point. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, have a great time on the trails if you can get out to them. If you can't, keep yourself healthy, keep working out, do whatever you can to keep the ball rolling. We will see you next time.